Now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honour to welcome Ash Moria, CEO and founder of Lean Stack, author of Running Lean and Scaling Lean. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be on, Aiden. Real pleasure to have you, man. I've read Running Lean and I'm halfway through Scaling Lean and it's so relevant beyond the startup to the actual big corporate of today. And we're going to touch on that later. But to start with, it'd be great to get a rundown of what Running Lean teaches us and what makes a successful startup. Sure. So being an entrepreneur myself, I got very interested in the process of building things. And and like a lot of people out there, I had lots of great ideas, but not all of them went on to become great products or great business models. And so that created a problem for me after a while because I wanted to figure out at the start, all these ideas looked very promising, but at some point, a couple years down the road, they weren't. So what was what was wrong um, and, and, and how can I um, better vet my ideas? That was really what inspired me to get started. So Running Lean was my attempt at codifying my lessons learned. Um, some of the mistakes that I made, I began blogging about it, eventually got turned into a book. And one of the things that I did as part of writing the book was teach some of these ideas. And I began to see lots of patterns. I began to see that really everyone out there was fundamentally making the same high-level mistakes. And one of the biggest pitfalls that I point out now is this notion of the innovator's bias or the entrepreneurial bias. And that's where we as entrepreneurs, as innovators, tend to prematurely fall in love with our solution. And then we spend every waking moment trying to just brute force that solution. And that isn't the optimal way to build what customers want. Yeah, that really makes sense because when, when you read Running Lean and you, you look at the innovator's bias, you, you, you see that we all do this. We all have this bias towards something that we fall in love with, trying to square peg that into a round hole. And that, that leads to 9 out of 10 startups failing, as you say, and 60%, 66% having to drastically change their original plans in some way. But one of, one of the great ways I kind of looked at your when I read your work it reminded me of um, the Thomas Edison quote that he didn't fail he actually found 10,000 ways that won't work and that really resonated with me because you talk about this constant constant iteration and that iteration only comes from actually shipping the product not doing a business plan absolutely and 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 that's 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 where the learning feedback loop begins to come in is that we may have some you know, grand schemes and grand ideas, but the only test is when that idea has impact with its customers and based on what they do, not what they say they'll do, but based on what they do, we sometimes have to adjust our ideas. So again, there's a big difference. I don't want to make it sound like we just need to go out and and do a bunch of focus groups and surveys and ask customers what they want because I wish life were that easy, but Steve Jobs said it well when he said it's not the customer's job to know what they want because oftentimes they just don't. Um, They can describe what they're trying to achieve and what problems they're running into, and that's the key there. So that's why in the Running Lean book, I talk about um, uncovering what customers want in the two-phase process. We have to first get inside their heads and really understand their problems deep enough, and only then can we begin to formulate solutions. And sometimes the solution we have in our mind may not work and we have to adjust and tweak refine along the way and that's where the iterations come in so rather than doing big bang product launches uh, the big message or the key message in in running lean and the lean startup in general is run small and fast additive iterations or experiments 
to test those along the way. Yeah, and and you you talk often about the lean startup and the lean startup work, but your work was concurrent to that, wasn't it? The the lean startup Eric Reese's work and your work were at the same time. It was almost like this kind of synergy of thinking that happened around the same time. Yeah, it was a dialogue. So I would I would say that it's it's the funny thing with with um, with ideas in general is that if you look at a telephone, it was invented by two people um, at the same time, and they weren't collaborating. It just happened to be the time for the telephone. Um, so similarly, I think a lot of the what I've kind of retrospectively look, seen is a lot of the conditions for thinking about what became the lean startup were there. Um, you know, the world changed. It was easier to build products, but not, but still the odds of success were dismal because we were building stuff nobody wanted. And so that's what Eric began to talk about. Why does that happen? Steve Blank and a whole bunch of people kind of were talking about similar things. And we all influenced each other. I, I, I was heavily influenced by both Steve Blank and Eric Reese. But I would say that I stumbled into the problem firsthand and was already searching for solutions. Um, one of the things that I also think is a bit of a extension or, or what's different about what I do is that I took some of the experimental mindset from what Eric was talking about with the lean startup and really front loaded it with the concept of business modeling. Um, so in the past, we would go and write elaborate business plans. Um, nobody enjoys doing that. It takes a lot of time. And at the end, it just seems like a waste of time. Um, but at the, at, at the same, by the same token, you still need to have some plan in place. And that's where I began, again, looking for alternatives and ran into this thing called the business model canvas, refined it into what became the one page business model, the lean canvas. Um, and I would say that in some ways is the contribution as well. So I look at my work as being kind of business modeling meets um, in some ways systems thinking, which we may talk about with the second book, meets the lean startup. And it's really a, a synthesis or synergy of all three things um, can that, that all come together and make I, in my mind, the whole kind of being greater than the sum of the parts. And, and the beauty of it is you, you, you experience these problems. I, I love this because your background was you experienced this problem yourself. And it's a typical kind of innovator in that you can't just sit on that problem. You actually have to go and obsess on the problem to actually find the correct solution. And you found the correct solution for yourself as an entrepreneur. And through that, you've built your whole business out of that. And you, you like the lean, the lean uh, canvas. Because I read the the business model generation book and the business model canvas. I used that the whole time, and then I found running lean, and I was like, this is way more relevant as some for somebody building a product. So building an app or whatever it is for for your for your customer, this actually fits the the perfect model. Where 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 it always becomes a problem though, and we'll touch on this later on is when yep. you are forced by a CFO or somebody from the old traditional world of business who goes, no, I want a business plan. And the business plan, as you say often, is not read, but you have to go through that painful process of the business plan when your one-page diagram of your, of, your, of your lean canvas is actually your Bible. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's the conversation that matters. So if I can get into a room with you, and in 20, 30 minutes, if I can present my idea to you, but not just uh, with the innovator's bias. So the innovator's bias would be something like, I'm building something awesome. You know, give me resources, give me money, give me my team and 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 let me go build it and then it'll be great. Um, so that's not a very good pitch. So you still have to get down to what are those critical assumptions? What are, you know, what could go wrong? How will this work? 
Um, but you don't need a full business plan to do it. And that's the beauty of the Lean Canvas is that with just a one page slide, you can get across 80% of your idea. And then with the conversation, you get to the other remaining 20%. And what ensues is a whole bunch of feedback and conversation, which is it, which is really the goal of even the business plan. But as you said, because no one reads it, you don't ever get to that point. Yeah, and so it's often the the idea killer. It it, it stops you because <laughs> when you're dealing with the future, you can't project revenues, and it often doesn't get you to that point. And you, you talk about it is that the learning doesn't happen during the building or the 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 iteration of the build of whatever product you're you're going to build. It's actually with the it's actually with the shipping of it of actually getting it to customers, getting it out into the real world, and just testing over and over. And That's right. have you any advice for, for those, say, entrepreneurs, people who are stuck inside a big corporate and are trying to break the inertia of thinking, of the old world thinking? Do you have any advice for those guys? So I guess the good news is that that problem is well known as well. So for decades, we know that we have to innovate, um, otherwise we'll get disrupted. So that's, that's the good news. Um, and maybe what makes that even more acute is that the pace of innovation has been accelerating. So more and more industries are getting disrupted. Look at the newspapers, look at, um, you know, all kinds of media. You can go to many different spaces, even like listing sites, you know, job sites, they're all getting disrupted um, by the next Google, the next Facebook, the next whatever that's coming down the pipeline. And so we all know that that problem exists. So that's why there is there's this hunger for finding solutions to the problem. Um, at the same time, what's different in kind of the lean approach is that we place a lot of emphasis on, as you kind of described it, not not the build, but rather the measure and the learn, and more specifically with respect to customers. So the advice that I often will give people is they really have to find better and faster ways of getting their ideas in the hands of customers. And sometimes, you know, more easily said than done. But some of the best success stories I found in large corporates have been the entrepreneurs that tend to ask for permission later. So they go out outside the building. Um, they'll do some small scale testing with a customer. And this isn't when I say small scale testing, this doesn't have to put the brand on the line. It doesn't have to go and do anything that will get you fired. It's really having a conversation, gathering evidence that this is a problem worth solving, getting customer commitments to saying, you know, here's a price. Would you accept it? You know, you can do all of these types of things without really getting into trouble. And so some of the best teams I've found you know, went out and some of these teams are, are, you know, in conservative industries like banks. And there was one that was a big telecom company, but they went out there and interviewed a handful of their customers, came back to their managers and said, look, there's a problem that's underserved. And if we did, if we solved it this way, that could be a really interesting business model. And here's how that might work. And they present the one page in canvas with the customer based evidence. And those teams didn't get fired. They actually got, you know, limited time, but more resources to go and explore the idea. And that is a key message is that we can see the future. So really, the process is really one of searching rather than executing. You can't really execute on an idea that you're uncertain about, but we can definitely search for possibilities and rule out the ones that will never work and double down on the ones that do. And that's ultimately what this process is about. Yeah, because you talk about the learning is the measure of progress, not the actual shipping of the product because you can ship a product nobody wants and can we touch on that for a sec because this idea of constant learning is something people are only getting used to because you see people 
going into big corporates and they they get these almost linear jobs that are very specified and it's kind of like i-shaped worker versus a t-shaped or an o-shaped worker who constantly learns in in an infinity loop of learning and that that's a that's a huge shift that's happened in the world as well yeah yeah and and so again when you embrace that fast feedback loop you know the, the learning does come very quickly and it comes in these small bursts um, and then that's where, you know, going back to your Edison code, this notion of failure goes away, right? So if every week, um, and you can do this every day, by the way, but let's just say every week you are having some interaction with customers. These could be a customer conversation, you know, could be an interview, could be showing them some mock-ups, showing them some demos um, and getting real actionable feedback. If you're doing that every single week, as you change the product, as you change your mind, I would... I would really challenge you to call that failing. I mean, that's just you adjusting uh, to something that works. And that's the beauty of this is that when you incorporate such small and fast feedback loops in the process, you're really just course correcting your idea from what you thought you would build to what you actually build. And because you're involving customers, you actually end up building things that they do want at the end. And it's a co-creation process. Um, and that and that's the beauty of all of it is that you end up building things that, that customers want I'm going to avoid the big bang failures where it's all, you know, guesswork execution. And then the moment of truth is when you ship and then you realize you are off by a lot. Yeah. And and you're inevitably going to be off a certain amount, but you, you give this beautiful framework of how to, how to, to work on experiments. And you talk about the seven habits of experiments. Could we touch on that for a second, Ash? Sure. Um, actually, maybe just to set the stage, I would say that this idea of iteration, um, you know, I, I do come from a software background. And so in software, there are there, there's a discipline of Scrum or Agile that's very popular in, nowadays. And that is this notion of taking a big project, breaking into small pieces, usually two week at a time, three week at a time iterations, and then getting together with your team to review progress. And all that works. The only difficulty with that is that we are still measuring build velocity we're measuring how quickly can we build this big project in these small iterations but if we end up building something nobody wants because there was a fundamental assumption that was wrong all we prove to ourselves is that we can build something nobody wants on time and on budget and nobody wants that so in the scaling lead book before even getting to experiments i kind of expose this notion of what i call a lean sprint so take the same two-week cycle, and if it's if it's too short for what I'm going to describe, make it three weeks or make it four weeks. But in that time frame, don't just build stuff. You've got to build something. You've got to put it in front of customers and then measure some something as a result of it, some reaction, some action that comes out of it. And that is what will fuel the learning loop. And so when you're designing experiments, you have to break them down into those three phases. There's a build phase, um, and before you even build, you have to start, I don't know if we'll get through all seven of the habits, but I'll at least outline the most the most common ones. Um, one of the most important thing is declaring outcomes up front. So a lot of the lean approach comes from the scientific method and would be unheard of for scientists just to go into labs and start mixing a bunch of compounds just to see what they can do. And we tend to do those types of things. You know, we, we build some product, uh, you know, some features, and then we throw it out there to see what happens. And that is not a very good way to run an experiment. So we have to declare outcomes up front. And that is key because otherwise post-rationalization sets in. So no matter what the outcome is, there is going to be an outcome. And we will often 
unconsciously rationalize it saying, oh, I expected that or this was just a bad time to launch. We'll try again next month. Um, and that's not a very healthy way to hold ourselves accountable. Typically, when we do that, we give ourselves all kinds of excuses for not achieving business model goals. And eventually, we run out of time, run out of resources, all those things happen. And we just kill the project without really learning anything. Um, so a much better approach is for every experiment you run, declare an outcome up front. Um, and then, you know, the, in, in the book, I describe some steps for doing that and some some techniques and even tricks for doing it, because oftentimes... We are scared to make bold declarations because we don't. We are afraid of you know being proven wrong. Um, we are afraid of what our peers think. So I kind of share some tactical uh, things in there that might be helpful to overcome those. Uh, another key part when declaring outcomes is making sure they are falsifiable. And that's a big word that comes from the scientific method. That simply means it has to be testable. Um, it has to be measurable. And so again, in the book, I go through some some fragments that you can use. Um, but those are the two big ones. You want to make sure that they are, they are, you're declaring outcomes up front. You are making sure that they can be measured and, and tested. And then you want to time box your experiments. That one comes, I mean, rather naturally for people because otherwise we'll be waiting a long time. And then very important is to have a baseline. Um, if you are just going out there and coming up with numbers out of thin air or measuring conversion rates or, or, uh, or things like that with no, benchmark or baseline, then again, you don't know if that was any good. So you need to have some baseline or benchmark. In the beginning, you can look at others in the industry. You can use some industry standard numbers. Um, you can start anywhere. You can just guess in the beginning. And then over time, I guarantee that as you begin to run experiments, your judgment just naturally improves. You actually begin to understand how customers react or don't to your ideas, to your features. And those predictions become a lot more um, accurate. And that's the goal is that if you can predict what your customers are going to do, you can, you're not going to be hundred percent certain, but if you can predict that upfront, that's usually when the business model begins to, um, to kind of turn the course and start working. And that's when we get into product market fit and eventually scale. Yeah. And you, you talked there, you mentioned there about the practical advice, cause you give some great advice about in particular, putting, putting it out there that this is what I expect to happen. And, some some leaders or some management will struggle with that being false or being proven wrong but i i think there's a there's a shift hopefully in the world towards the leader or the manager not having to have all the answers or not having to know the answers to every question that his team are more empowered but also this power shift moving towards the customer and you talk about this an awful lot in all your work is the customer first approach can we talk about that, Ash? Because I, I think people talk about that. They talk a great game about being customer or audience focused, but they don't right. deliver on that message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that we we pay a lot of lip service to talking to customers, and I you know go back to that Steve Jobs quote is that if you simply ask them what they want, you often will build something that they don't really want because therein um, kind of lies another. Uh, bias this time is just maybe a human bias. But if you ask anyone for for a a, uh, a you know what what can I do for you, they will usually give you a solution. Um, but if they don't understand the problems themselves, then then it's going to be hard for you to actually solve anything for them. Um, so there is a whole bunch of techniques. And so we, if I go back to the Running Lean book, it's really solely if I summarize it, it's really all about 
how do we build what customers want without asking them? Yeah, you know, without asking them for the feature list, without asking them for the solution. And so it goes through a, a pretty methodical process for how you have to start with problems, how you have to uncover their their goals and obstacles and understand their existing alternatives. And only then can you really begin to understand what solution might fit in their context. Um, and even, like I said, sometimes they don't even know that. And that's where innovation lies. Innovation is not the job of customers. That's really our jobs as the innovators. Um, so we own the solution box, but we need the customer's help to uncover that. Um, so that's where this work begins to differ because a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, we talk to customers all the time. We run surveys, we run focus groups. Uh, but those often miss the mark because, as I said, it, it's very hard to get a customer to tell you what's going to work. That's really our job to go figure out. Yeah, because most customers with declared data, like survey data, will just answer it because maybe some incentive to do it. But uh, I, I, I love to, a thing you talked about before because you talk about um, market constraints and also behavioral change. But one of the things you really talk about is commission for salespeople. So you talk about how to, like the, the beauty of, the, of your work is you cover every aspect because you are... <laughs> the customer or the reader of the book or the, the actual receiver of this information as well as the creator of it. But you talk about this with salespeople about certain certain incentives will will um, will evoke certain behaviors and how to unlock the behaviors you want. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it really goes down to kind of this notion of, of spe- I call it the curse of specialization, is that as we have grown bigger. Um, we've all specialized into kind of different skills and, and sales being one of them, you know, development or building is another design, another marketing, another. And so we all specialized. And then to make work, you know, to incentivize people, we come up with these local KPIs, key performance indicators. So I might go to my salesperson and say, if you sell more, I will pay you more. So I'll give you these commissions uh, and, and we'll do this monthly. So you're incentivized for the whole month to go and sell as much as you can. Um, on principle, it sounds great because people have this incentive. They're going to sell more. The problem we run into is that hum- that every, every one of these business models or every one of these things is a system and it kind of works in complex ways. And so the way I'll, I'll, I'll describe this is, let's say a salesperson is, chugging along and it's the last week of the month and they haven't met their quota. Well, they want to make their commission. And so they're going to change tactics. Um, they might actually start getting aggressive on the calls. They might actually start pushing. Um, they, they, they might actually start aggressively discounting or misrepresenting the product. Um, all kinds of things can be happening. And so as a result, what ends up happening is that they may make the sale, but the sale may not be, the one that sticks and studies have showed this so people have found that customer retention is actually higher when they are sold to in the beginning of the month than at the end of the month and if you study that even further it's oftentimes because those customers were forced into a sale and they may not have bought the product under normal circumstances but they did it because of some tactic or the other and so when they had a chance to to cancel away or, or get rid of the product they did so in month two or month three they were done and they left and that's a huge expense. So in the short term, salesperson makes a commission, but the whole company serves this customer for two or three months and then they have to see them go away. That's an awful waste of all these resources. And it doesn't only happen to salespeople. So the way these KPIs work 
is that if we don't think of the business model outcome, if we don't think of the of the whole as a system, we can start to optimize these local KPIs and run into the same issues. So I might go to a marketer and say, I want leads. I want I want to be able to get leads into my system. And a good marketer will ask me, what's my budget? Because they can go and buy leads at every price point. They may not be any good, but they'll get me leads if that's all I care about. So if I don't tell them I want leads that will convert and I'm going to measure that conversion and make sure they're staying with us for 90 days or whatever my time frame is, um, I'll just get crappy leads because that's how they're going to get their commission. That's the easy work. They'll take it and, and be done. Um, so this this is something that we see everywhere. And so the the antidote to that is this idea of thinking of the output of a business model as a whole. And that's why in my work, I have to go cross-discipline, is that the lean approach cannot just work with developers. It can't just work with marketers, can't just work with designers, can't just work with sales or marketing. We have to get a cross-functional team together. We have to understand the customer output that we are trying to achieve. And sometimes that customer output requires a marketing solution. Sometimes it requires a developer development or design solution. And, and we have to be ready for that. So that's why it's a it's a very cross-functional, um, multidisciplinary type of a, of a methodology. Yeah, and you, c- you can really see your experience of being the CEO or the, the puppet master pulling all the different strings of the different departments and, and also the growth of those departments. You can That all comes true in the book, which is why it's such a valuable book. And the reason I, I really w- wanted you to come on the show was to share that this your work is goes way beyond the the world of the startup and goes into the innovator but or goes into traditional companies now and i know you're doing a lot of consultancy with traditional companies but before we go there the, the one one place i'd love to to finish here is, is before we finish negatively on the startup because eric reese says startups that succeed are those who manage to iterate enough times before running out of resources but then going back to an edison quote Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. And what what I what I thought when I read both of those quotes was of your work because you you give the startup or the company every chance to succeed and you go and iterate iterate in const in in permanence. But, but when Ash do they call it? When do they call give up after maybe pivoting sixty six percent of time? When do they say enough is enough? So. The way that I, I address that dichotomy, yes, because on the one hand, we tell you, people you have to be, you have to persevere, you have to have grit, and that's the entrepreneurial trait. Without that, you're not going to survive. On the other hand, we say you've got, you know, you've, you've got to fail fast and move on, and they're they're both in in conflict with each other. But the way I, I reconcile that is by really focusing on a, a bunch of things. The, the first is really falling in, so encouraging innovators to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. So the challenge we get into is when we think that I'm going to build, if I use the Edison example, I'm going to build this particular type of light bulb. And because it's not ready for because a a customer said, no, I'm just going to brute force that. um, That usually is where we often go wrong. Um, A much better. And so I often, the the analogy I give um, on that is that trying to start with the solution is like building a key and you don't quite know what door it's going to open. And so we can randomly a thousand times try every door we run into and you might get lucky. So I would say that in Edison's case, he was very brute force um, and he may have have given up while others, sorry, 
he, he actually persevered while, while others did not. And he, in some ways, got this solution out there. But it was still, at the end of the day, a problem worth solving. So there's never going to be uh, you know, a methodology or an, an answer that will cover all cases. But what I find is that a much better approach is rather than saying, I'm going to build a light bulb, you want to instead fall in love with the problem. So what is the problem out there? If you're using candles or, or things, you know, and, and he, of course, was aware of those problems and he was trying to solve it. And then it becomes a lot clearer. You have then you understand the dimensions or axes of what you have to do. Um, so when you know you're competing against a candle, um, you know what the light bulb has to do. And so it guides the direction you're going into. So if I say just go and brute, just go and build a light bulb, um, that's kind of scary. But if I, if you know what you have to do to to displace what people are using today, then it becomes a lot easier. So that's one part of the answer, which is fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And you see this as a pattern with many serial entrepreneurs. If I just use Ev Williams as an example, um, he started Blogger, he started Medium, he started Twitter. Um, he started a podcast thing in the middle, which didn't do too well. If you look at a common thread across all of them, they're all about communication. They're all about short form messaging, getting ideas out there. And so he's in love with that problem and he has built many solutions along the way, some widely successful, some not so successful. But that to me is what I find as the common trait. So you have to be, you have to have perseverance and grit, but if you can channel it towards a customer and a big problem worth solving, then you will have kind of better chances of success. Um, as to the pivot question, um, I tend to, uh, in the newer work, I tend to um, describe goals and I, I tend to describe uh, time boxes as measures for when you know an idea is working or maybe when it's time to put it on the back burner or even reset it. So a lot of this process is about evidence-based learning. So I guarantee if you kind of follow the, the, the methods that we describe and go and begin to talk to customers, um, when you start getting flat out no's, um, that's one thing. But when you get that flat out no's with reasons where customers tell you, I can't use your product because it's 10 times as expensive as what I'm already using and it works, there's no arguing with that. You know that that's not going to work. So either you find a way to, to reduce your costs, uh, sorry, reduce your price and make the business model work, or you go do something else. So a lot of this process is about getting informed learning in those iterations. And so what I find is that when people are pivoting, um, they're not pivoting because they gave up. They're pivoting because they got all the evidence they wanted that told them this idea is never going to work. And so they will switch directions. And so if you have a discipline of doing that and you time box what you're doing, um, I find that the pivot decisions become rather natural and that they're not much of a, of a challenge at that point. Um, hopefully that answered the question, but um, but it, so I would say it's a combination of setting a goal with a time box and then using the learning as a way to tell whether you're heading in the right direction or not. Yeah, um, yeah. And, the, so and, yeah. that, and that constant that constant iteration actually gives you that constant feedback if you're doing it right. Because again, I can't uh, I can't emphasize enough how how the book actually does that for you. It gives you that framework, and if you follow it, yeah. it actually it works in permanence. But there's there's a lovely line, the tagline for running lean, and you talk about it's not about a better plan A, but a plan, but a path to a plan that works. And this is resonant on so many aspects because you you are doing a lot of work with corporates now about adopting a kind of an agile or lean approach to their 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 traditional business. And in a way, if you take that saying, it's but not about a better plan A. Most 
corporates are still making a better version of themselves. So they may be coming leaner or optimizing their business in some way, but they're actually only becoming a better per- version of what they are. In some t- some ways, they're actually getting faster at their demise. They're making their demise more rapid because they're out of sync with what's needed by the customer. But you're you're now working with a lot of those, those uh, traditional companies to kind of bring in new thinking, new fresh thinking, new approaches to experiments. Can we touch on that, Ash, and, and talk about how those those corporates and those big older companies can learn from your models? Sure. So I I sometimes kind of joke with um with the bigger companies and and I tell them that a lot of startups die because they can't find enough customers to talk to. A lot of the bigger companies die because they stop talking to their own customers. And so that's when you begin to lose sight of what job the customer is trying to get done. And you go into, again, optimizing an execution mode where you make your products better, faster, cheaper. But fundamentally, if the customer's job has changed or there is some new tech out there that does something, you know, not incrementally, but disruptively, you know, 10x times better, uh, it doesn't even have to be 10x, it could be just 2x or 3x. Um, then at that point, there's just no conversation. Your your 20% gains is not going to is not going to keep them. They're just going to switch away to something better. Um, so, a lot of my work starts out kind of the same way with entrepreneurs. And so, even though I I, I started a lot um, by talking and writing for startup entrepreneurs, um, I found that any early stage product has the same set of challenges, which is we live in a highly uncertain world. Um, we can build a lot of things, but the bigger question is knowing, will anyone care at the end of the day? And so when I go and share that message with big companies, I get lots of nodding heads, just like I do with the startups, because they've been there. They've gone and had these big initiatives, big ideas, and only learned that it's not going to work after they launch. So the, the problems and the symptoms and the, the pitfalls are all the same. And so it's very much the same process. And where things begin to differ are the tactics. So going back to my, you know, kind of the, the joke about them not uh, 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 talking to their, their own customers effectively is really where I spend most of the time. So we come up with, um, so the principles everyone gets, people understand that they have to do business plans and business cases, and those are just, you know, very heavyweight things that don't really work. So tools like Lean Canvas and the traction model and, and being able to do some simple simple forecasts are much more effective. And so that, that everyone kind of agrees with that. It's just comparing it to business plan, it seems like an easy win. Um, where they tend to struggle with is who talks to customers, right? So who goes outside the building, who has permission, um, you know, who, who, who gets to ask them the questions. And so that's where I spend more, more of my time working with these companies. And there are many different solutions. We can outline a few of them. So some of the bigger companies I work with have created internal accelerators. Um, the idea is to un- realize that innovation doesn't happen at the same scale, at the same speed in all, in all cases. There are going to be core business products that are very short term and are all about you know, Wall Street earnings or uh, um, uh, uh, shareholder returns. And those things uh, are typically not uh, are, are things that are already in place and you may not want to, to mess with them too much. And then you have your horizon two and three, which are more far reaching ideas. And that's where I find a lot of the sweet spot for these ideas. When there's lots of uncertainty, when there's potential 
solutions or problems or customers you want to go explore, um, you can apply a lot of these techniques to get some small scale validation very quickly. So that's usually the entry point and it follows much the same process as let's create a canvas, let's kind of sketch these ideas out on, on this canvas, let's see how it all comes together. Let's create some multiple variants because executing on one idea may not yield the, the best result. Let's look at some alternatives. Um, and that's the planning phase. Once we have that, we have to start customer validation. So let's find a way to run an experiment with a customer. And the good news is that in theory, many of these corporates already have customers. And so in theory, they should never fail if they have if they can find effective ways of learning from those customers. And so that's where we spend a bunch of time is how do you really structure those conversations? How do you really um, you know, protect your brand, protect your, uh, your revenue? Um, there are a lot of tactics there. Um, but if you can overcome those, you actually end up building things in small scale, proving they work, and then rolling them out, um, which is, again, counter to how big companies work. Big companies think that because they're big, everything they launch has to be launched in a big way. And that's one of the fundamental mind shifts that we we try to instill is that um, every every idea has a life cycle and it actually helps to give yourself permission to scale in stages, then try to just go to scale immediately, which is usually not a not a not a very uh, smart idea. And do, do you find you usually have to does, it's a new team because you mentioned the accelerators. So I always use the example of it's like having a, a Netflix growing inside a blockbuster where you're actually trying to bring this new mindset. Are they new people or are they mavericks from within the traditional company? Yes. So, so every company has a different culture. And so I've seen different 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 combinations work. Um, so in some of the companies I work with, um, they, are, they actually run an internal accelerator and they invite any employee to submit an idea. Um, and the submission process is simple. You create a lean canvas. You get 10 minutes with the innovation team or with an executive. And you kind of essentially share your idea with them. Um, and this is where you talk not just about the idea, but the potential of the idea. So it's, it would be like a pitch, but it's more kind of driven on kind of the lean canvas and how you might go test the idea. Um, at the end of it, if, you're, if your idea is promising, you get a little bit of money. And when I, by money, I mean time. So you get maybe three months, a quarter's worth of time where you can you know, essentially stop your, your day responsibilities and go explore this idea. Uh, you may have an ask for sort of team members and you go off and do it. So that's one model. Um, and that's worked really well with some of the companies I've seen. Um, in other places where the DNA isn't really there, where it's they feel like they have to go externally or they're working on tech that is so far out. So if I take a bank, uh, things like blockchain, for instance, some of those happen internally, but sometimes it's easier to go find startups that are doing things with blockchain. And so that's another model where a big company might say, here's a tech like blockchain, or here are some problems we'd like to solve, really hard problems, um, and let's bring in an accelerator, but we'll do an external accelerator where we'll get startups from the outside come and work on these problems. And if there's something interesting there, we'll just acquire them or we'll invest in them. You know, all kinds of possibilities end up um, as a result of that. So, so again, different combinations, both internal and external, can work. Um, it just many times depends on the culture of the company and also the environment in which they're operating. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And the last question for you, I'm just wary of your time, is you talk, you, you talk often about when you launch an experiment that your early adopters can often come from somebody who may follow your blog, for example, because the, the power of content marketing, of which you were a king, 
is is so important these days and it's probably a question you're not asked that much but i see how i mean your own your own company leanstack.com now has actually grown out of this passion that you had to create content and to actually advise and help others for free and even like if i'm correct when you launched running lean you you used almost the the dropbox approach of having the book on and see if there was enough interest, an image of the book, and see if there was enough interest in the book to buy it before you actually went and, and got the book published. Is that correct? Sure. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, I love that, man, because I actually said that to so many people I know who were writing books. I said, you should see what this guy did, did Ash Mora. He, he put the picture up and he, and he just measured how many clicks were on the book and then actually went, okay, there's enough interest here. But, but you're... Your use of content marketing of your own content is is so clever in that you're you're basically reassuring your your market, your customer, and also your peers of your own uh, ability all the time, but also including them in that voyage at all times as well. Could sure, you? I mean, I mean, and 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 that you know, so I I will just say that it doesn't have to always be content marketing, but in principle, I find that to establish a a a a leading position in your field if you can out teach your competition then you also outlearn them and it's 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 pretty counterintuitive and that's really why i started blogging too is that i found that as i wrote these blog posts i understood the topic better and so i actually got better and as a result of the comments and, and questions that i got i realized that there were still maybe some flaws in my thinking and that was another nice feedback loop so going back to the book example when i decided to write the book. Um, I first thought I would just write it like a typical author, which is lock myself up in, in my room for six months or a year and just crank out pages. And I found one, it was very hard to do. And two, I had more questions than answers. And so I just came up with this approach, which is let's do some of the teaser page things you talked about. But even more important, I began to run workshops. I began to do talks. I went in and taught everything that was going to be in the book before I actually wrote the book. And in the process of doing that, I learned a ton. So because I had to organize my own thoughts, um, the book became easier to write. But more importantly, because the people that were I was exposing this to had feedback and questions and comments um, that consciously and sometimes unconsciously changed the book as well. And so at the end, I actually wrote a book through those iterations because I was um, testing with my readers all along the way. So when the book was out, it was no surprise that it was well received because they actually helped me write it. So it was it was co it was a co-creation process. So that's so so whether it's content marketing or it's you know doing videos or it's just you know classic white papers or doing consulting, um, I just look at it more as if you can build a continuous feedback loop with your customers you win. Um, and if you can kind of shorten the cycle times of learning, you'll win as well because you will get all this feedback um, coming to you and you end up refining and doing those course correcting I talked about. And eventually one day you'll have this product that wouldn't just work with the dozens or hundreds of customers you're testing with, but it will extrapolate out to the hundreds of thousands or millions, depending on kind of your your reach and, and, uh, and ambition for product. Yeah, that, that makes sense, man, about the, the constant learning because it's one thing I've noticed with every innovator and every entrepreneur I've spoken to is they are constant learners. Do, do you have any last advice for people, books to read or people to follow that you learn from yourself? Yeah, so I, I have you know tons of classic books that I can, I can rat out here, but 
instead what I tend to do and, and is probably what I will advise people to do is really you know, baseline where your learning really is and what and so maybe I'll take a step back. When I pick up a book, I pick it up to solve a problem and it's kind of sad. And even if I if I'm reading a fictional book, um, it's because I want to, you know, kill time or stress or be entertained. So there's still something there. But this is this applies more to nonfiction. So I would say with nonfiction, I don't pick a book just because it looks interesting. I pick a book to apply it. And that book will differ based on what what obstacles or problems I'm currently facing. So if I'm trying to launch a new product, I might pick up a marketing book because I want to understand when I did my my book launch, I read a ton about book launches. And so figure out the best sources for uh, for solutions for the problem you're encountering and go learn from them. It doesn't also have to just be a book. You could go and try to find an advisor. You could go and try to reach out. I talked to a bunch of successful authors before I, I wrote my own book to understand what the process was like, you know, what marketing should look like, um, you know, does content marketing work? You know, I had a whole bunch of questions and that's a very effective way for short-circuiting your learning. So that's what I would recommend is identify um, the few things that you need to get done. So the few riskiest assumptions in your business or the few constraints or bottlenecks that are holding you back and really just focus on solving those and search for a whole bunch of solutions. So don't just think you have the answer um, really understand that problem, going back to love the problem, not your solution. Really understand what you're trying to achieve, what the problem is, and go look for solutions, whether that's in a book, whether that's in a YouTube video, whether that's um, you know picking up the phone and, and trying to reach somebody who may have the answer. Um, and if you do that, I guarantee you, you, you again, shorten your, your cycle times towards um, finding something that will work. I love that, man. That's a, a lovely way to wrap up. Uh, loving the problems, and you're you're actually living that with your own uh, your own education, self education. Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, people can find you on theleanstack.com, Running Lean, runningleanhq.com is where they can find the book, and uh, your ashmoira.com, and also Twitter ashmoira. Is there anywhere else people can find you, Ash? That's uh that, no, those are all all the great places, and usually everything is on leanstack.com. So if that's the only domain you want to remember, just leanstack will uh, will get you to all those other places. Brilliant, man! Well, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Thanks, Ash.